You well have noticed that all of the chosen hymns in the bulletin are psalms, and the opening psalm was the 100th psalm. The psalm that we just sang together was the 98th. So I ask that you now turn in your Bibles to the 100th psalm. This is the psalm that will be memorized by our children this week in Vacation Bible School, the 100th psalm. Let's pray briefly before we read together. Almighty God and our Father, we thank you for the songbook of Israel and that it remains the songbook of your people throughout the ages. We praise your name that we have just sung two psalms and that the psalms are so rich in telling us who you are and telling us about ourselves and our need of you and that, that depth of experiential fellowship and communion with you that we find in the Psalms. Sometimes, Father, seems overwhelming to us. May we find ourselves with the psalmist crying before you, with the psalmist crying before you for the salvation of others or for the conversion of the nations and even for the judgment to come, crying out for you with shouts of praise as well as we see in this psalm tonight. Give to us thankful hearts as we now turn to your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 100. This is the word of the Lord. A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. God, the God who is, the God of the Bible, will be praised. He will see to it. He is worthy of adoration and he is worthy of praise. That is why he has saved us, that we may praise his name. He is worthy of praise because of his character. He is worthy of worship, and only he is so worthy. He is the incomparable God. There is none to compare to the triune God, one God in three persons, the true and living God who has revealed himself to us in the sacred scriptures. Now, the psalm before us is very well known. It is the very first hymn in our hymn book, the Old Hundredth Psalm. I hope you love to sing it. It is very familiar to us. Most of us have memorized it at one point or another in our lives, and it is filled with praise, this old psalm, 100. But then it also tells us about the heart that renders praise. Now, Psalm 100 is the summit of a group of psalms that are called called homage psalms. We maybe don't use the word homage often today, but if it brings to mind the bowing down, the bending of the knee, then you're thinking appropriately about the homage psalms. From Psalm 93, again, as I say, culminating in Psalm 100, these are the psalms that are called the homage psalms. Now, I will not attempt anything exhaustive in the exposition of the passage tonight, but I want us to see essentially two truths, two truths. Yes, two truths with subpoints, but two truths. The first truth is this, 
the God we praise. Let's look at the God we praise according to this psalm. The God we praise. And about the God that we praise according to this psalm, first of all, he is the God who reigns. Now again, remember, these are the homage psalms. We bow before the God who rules, the God who reigns. You know, when I began the service, I called us to worship. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. And that comes from the 95th Psalm, one of these homage psalms. But according to this psalm and the other psalms of which it is a part, He is the God who reigns, and He is the God who will reign, and he is the God who so reigns that even nature praises him. So we read in chapter uh, 98, Psalm 98, and in verses 7 and 8, Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together. Anticipating that promise of Romans chapter 8, that even nature that groans under the effects of the fall as nature looks for the return of Christ who will make all things right. Nature itself will rejoice in its maker. The shout then, of which we find in verse 1, make a joyful noise, or it could be translated, shout to the Lord, all the earth. The shout that we find in verse 1 of Psalm 100 includes the nation's and even nature itself. The shout must extend as far as the curse is found. The shout of acclamation in this fallen world anticipates the renovation of the earth at the coming of Christ. And so, the God we praise is the God who reigns over all men, all nations, and over all the earth. But he also, this God that we praise, is also our covenant God. Now, Reformed theology, Reformed churches, emphasize the covenant. We do this not in some gratuitous fashion. We're not making this up. The Bible is a book about the covenant God who makes covenant with his people. Covenant theology is something that is found in the warp and woof of the Bible. How do you find it here? Well, you find it very easily because you see the divine name. You see when you read in this passage the capitalized Lord, the uppercase L-O-R-D, you will find it four times in the first stanza. And the name Elohim also is used. Yahweh, then, Jehovah, Lord, as it is translated here, is peculiarly God's covenant name. In Exodus 3, 13 through 15, when Moses in that very awesome moment, is told by God to take the shoes from his feet because the ground whereon he stood is holy ground. What was the name that God revealed? The name that he revealed was, I am that I am, utilizing the very letters of the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, Jehovah, or Lord. Ultimately, then we learn, if we had time to show it, that Yahweh is fulfilled in the name, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
But this is the name of the God who makes covenant with his people, who condescends to have relationship with his people through grace. And the ultimate fulfillment of God's covenant purpose is seen in Jesus Christ himself, who on the night when he was betrayed took bread and broke it and also a cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. All of you drink it. And this covenant that he has made with his people, this covenant God who has loved his people, cared for his people, sustains his people, this covenant God who sends the covenant Lord, who establishes the new covenant in his blood with his people. This covenant is a covenant that extends all the way into eternity to come. So that when we come to the very last chapters of the Bible, we find that the covenant formula, I will be your God, you will be my people, is reflected at the end of the word of God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is God's promise of the covenant to his covenant people, and that's why the emphasis upon the name Yahweh in Psalm 100. At the end of the psalm, we also see another emphasis upon God's covenant with his people. For at the end of the psalm, we read of God's covenant faithfulness stressed by the use of this Hebrew word chesed. Chesed. For the Lord, that's his covenant name, is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. That word steadfast love is God's covenant love or covenant fidelity. It's that word chesed. It is, it is so, so deep, so rich. There's so much involved actually in that word that it's almost untranslatable. With us, there is motion. There is change, measurability, causality, and limitation. Our breath is in our nostrils, but God's love is different. It participates in his everlasting nature and in his uncompromising faithfulness. His love is everlasting. His commitment does not change. And the Lord pledges himself to us forever in that word chesed, steadfast, covenant, faithful love. Is there any wonder that the people of God in the past had steel in their backbones That our Reformed fathers, for example, in Scotland, when they went through the killing times, is it any wonder that they turned to the Psalms, that they sang the Psalms, and they found in the Psalms, such as Psalm 100, perhaps in particular Psalm 100, the strength that they needed to face even death for the cause of God and truth. So the praise we offer, it is almost unbelievable, but it is so. The praise we offer is because the God of the universe is our God, the God who has made friends with us through the blood of Christ. This is encapsulated, anticipated, preached to us in the covenant name as we find it in Psalm 100. 
But the God we praise, according to this psalm, also is the creator and sustainer of his people. And as such, we praise him for his sovereign care. He has shown his care in forming us as his own people. Now, that's the meaning of verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. It parallels Isaiah 43, verses 20 and 21. I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself. It's the forming of God's covenant people he has in mind here. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are God's people formed, created in his covenant love and faithfulness through the supernatural operations of the Holy Spirit. We are his flock. We are special to him as our great and good shepherd. He is the shepherd that guides us, that protects us, that preserves us, that is gentle with us and familiar with us as people. And should we not think here of the words of our Lord Jesus Christ when he said, I am the good shepherd of the sheep, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. When Vince Strawbridge Jr. and I were in Romania together a number of years ago, we saw a lot of shepherds close up. I enjoy meeting with the shepherds because uh, most of the Romanian people are, are short, and I could actually look them in the eye and converse in their broken English or with a translator with them. Once I remember sheep just coming all around me. I was surrounded by sheep. But I have this vivid memory in my mind when Vince and I were driving away of one place where we didn't know the shepherd. We hadn't met him. We hadn't spent time with him. But we were driving away, and there were storm clouds above the flock, and he was in the middle of his sheep, sitting with his staff, gazing, I mean glaring at us, out from under his rain slicker, as if to say, don't mess with my sheep. And I thought of these references in Old Testament Scripture and in John chapter 10. What a wonderful thing. We are his people, the people of his pasture, special to him and his most precious possession. Will you understand that when you go through the hardships of life, you, his people, that he is not saying to you that I cast you aside. He is not saying to you, You've lost preciousness in my sight. He is saying to you, through it all, I am the shepherd. Through it all, I am the guide. Through it all, I am the sustainer. Through it all, I am the covenant God who has formed my people for myself. You just trust me. I know what I'm doing. And then this God that we praise is the God who may be known. Now, this is a remarkable thing. It's something that is so commonplace to us, we rarely meditate upon it. But surely the word know in verse 3 is not only that we know about God, but that we can know this God himself. Know that the Lord, he is God. We can know him because he has chosen to reveal himself to us and only because he has chosen to reveal himself to us. Now this is an ancient confession, and I find this to be very covenantal. The confession we read, know that the Lord, he is God, is echoed throughout the Bible. 1 Kings 18.39, when the prophets of Baal were defeated and the people cried out, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. 
Deuteronomy 4.39 asserts in similar language the uniqueness of God. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. 1 Kings 8.60, Solomon prays that the people may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. 2 Kings 19.19, Hezekiah prays that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. And so Psalm 100 simply reflects that formula that God's people have used throughout the ages, speaking of the uniqueness of God and His incomparability. We may know that unique God through Christ our Lord who has shed His covenant blood and who establishes peace between God and us. We now have a relationship with the Lord and we may know the God who is This is truly remarkable, and here we have certainty. The psalmist does not begin with, let's postulate the possibility of a God, and let's see where it might lead. Uh, the, The writer of the psalm does not say, suppose there were such a being as God. He doesn't do that. But he says, know that the Lord, he is God. This is fundamental to all else. So that unless you begin with the God of the Bible, you can know nothing rightly. You can only know this world rightly. You can only know yourself rightly by beginning with the God of the Bible. Well, this is the God we praise according to the psalmist. He is the God who reigns. He is our covenant God. He is the creator and sustainer of his people, and he is the God who may be known. Second point, the heart that praises this God who is, the heart that praises this God. There's praise all through the psalm, I'm sure you've noticed. Now, of course, such a God, the God who reigns, who is the covenant God, the creator, sustainer, the God who may be known, such a God as that deserves your praise and mine. The psalm begins with an imperative I mean, in the Hebrew text, the imperative, shout! It begins with a command. To worship such a God must be out of a heart that is filled with joy. And so he says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands, or all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. We are to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. It is filled with praise. But sadly, not all men praise God. None of us praise Him, really praise Him by nature. What kind of heart praises God? Well, note the psalm's title, A Psalm for Giving Thanks. You see it there in your Bibles? By the way, that is part of the psalm. When you see that title there, it is actually part of the psalm, A Psalm for Giving Thanks. The word there is toda, and it can mean thanks, but it also can mean a thank offering. And probably here it means a thank offering. Because you see in verse 4, we are said to enter into his gates with thanksgiving. You can picture the, 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 the Old Testament sacrifice being led by the man into the very temple precincts so that he may offer his thank offering unto the Lord. Only thankful hearts can give genuine praise. You don't doubt this, do you? 
How many times have I stressed the truth of Romans 1 in this regard? Look at Romans 1 for a moment. In verses 18 through 23, the kind of thing that if you're not paying attention, you might just read and not notice. But in Romans 1, 18 through 23, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 says, let's look at the Gentile world. Why is the Gentile world as it is? God has revealed himself clearly. All men know that. They suppress what they know to be true. God has so clearly revealed himself, but man has chosen to suppress that which he knows to be true out of a thankless heart. A thankless heart. We are not by nature thankful to God. None of us is. I remember my pastor, James M. Baird, illustrating this in a couple of interesting ways. When Dr. Baird and his family were uh, first, when he was first in the pastorate, small little place, as I recall, in Alabama, uh, Coca-Cola was a very, very rare treat in their home. It was an expensive kind of thing. And they wanted Sunday to be very, very special, a day of worship, a day of, of praise, and very, very special. And so Mrs. Baird, Jane Baird, in the afternoons decided... She was going to make it special because uh, they would have a Coca-Cola on Sunday. So you call in the, call in the boys, the Baird boys. Boys, come on in. And Mrs. Baird would put out an ice-cold Coca-Cola on Sunday afternoon. Doesn't that sound good? We might uh, institute that practice. Move to another pastorate. Elder walks in the door as they are bringing the furniture in and so forth. He's carrying three cases of Cokes. You know those big wooden cases? What were they, 24 or something like that? I don't know. Three cases of Coca-Colas. He says to Dr. Baird, this isn't for you. This is for your boys. So when the boys all came home, Dr. Baird said, see these Cokes over here? Elder so-and-so brought these, and these Cokes are for you, boys. They're all yours. So they get to know people in the church. One day they're at the church and they're driving out of the parking lot, Dr. Baird and his boys. He says to the boys, see that elder over there coming this way? He's the man that gave you the Coca-Cola. Roll down the window. Elder stopped by. He said, boys, this is the elder that gave you the Coca-Cola. What do you say to him? One of the Baird boys looks up into his face and said, We're out of Coke. (laughs) Embarrassing moment for a parent. (laughs) 
We are not thankful by nature. On another occasion, I remember that Dr. Baird said he was traveling, going to Mexico, as I recall, to teach other pastors. There was a taxi driver that uh, picked him up, driving along and said, um, what kind of preacher are you? Dr. Baird said, I'm a good one. No, no, I don't mean that. I mean, what denomination are you? He said, well, I'm a Presbyterian. Oh, you believe in predestination. Dr. Baird said he knew some things. He knew some things. Along the way, they got to know one another, and the fellow confided in Dr. Baird. He said, may I, may I talk with you? May I speak with you? Dr. Baird was thinking, yeah, I've heard it all. As a matter of fact, the man said, I know you're a pastor. You think you've heard it all. Yeah, I've heard it all. What can he say to me that I've never heard as a pastor? I've just heard it all. But Dr. Baird was surprised. The man said to him, let me tell you my problem. My problem is I am eaten up with ingratitude. Dr. Baird said, I hadn't heard it all. No one had ever said that to me before. But it's true of all of us. We just don't know it. It's true of all of us by nature in our depravity. We just don't see it. We are eaten up with ingratitude. And what happens to the ungrateful? Three times in Romans, chapter 1, he tells us what happens to ungrateful, unconverted sinners. And God gave them over and God gave them over, and God gave them over. So we talk about the wrath of God that is to come, but what about the wrath of God right here and now? Do you expect to see it in hurricanes? Do you expect it to see it in great fires and earthquakes? Well, maybe. But the way in which the wrath of God is commonly expressed in this world is that ungrateful, unconverted sinners... God just takes his hand off and he gives them over to their sin. That's judgment indeed. That's deep, serious judgment. That's judgment. And according to Romans 1, the first result is sexual confusion. We wonder why our culture, our society is sexually confused. Pretty easy. Ingratitude. Ingratitude. It leads to confusion. Well, what's the answer to ingratitude? If this is a psalm of thanksgiving, and if it's a psalm in which probably someone was bringing a thank offering into the temple to offer, singing this psalm or reciting it, what's the answer? Well, the answer is the thank offering that points to the Savior, which was a version of the peace offering that we find in Leviticus chapter 7, which shows that our salvation was dependent on the blood atonement, and for that we offer thanks. Shout for joy, serve with gladness, come into God's presence with singing. Where does that come from? It comes from a heart once ungrateful, now that has become grateful because cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. 
who knowing the wrath of God has been carried by Christ in his place can fail to be grateful. Gratitude shows. It shows in a changed countenance by serving the Lord, by serving others, but mostly by heartfelt worship. We want to come and say, thank you, thank you, Lord, through my great thank-offering Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And so, do we bring offerings today? Well, the Levitical offerings, they're done, finished in Christ. But there is one offering we still bring, one sacrifice left to be offered. No, nothing to be added to Christ's finished work. What then is that sacrifice that we continue to offer? Hebrews 13, 15 tells us, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. That's the only sacrifice that remains since Jesus shed his blood, a sacrifice of praise, and may we offer it. May our children offer it in Vacation Bible School. May you offer it in your lives. And God's people said, Amen.